Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. We are so excited that you have joined us for worship. My name is Mike Wilmer. I'm the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you are with us. Today is a, an amazing day. Um, it's Sunday. It's always an amazing day, but I'm, I'm super, and, and super and completely and totally excited about this day because I get the opportunity, perhaps one of the greatest and most exciting days of my preaching life, because I get the opportunity to share the pulpit and preaching with my daughter. And I am just excited. She's terrified, and I love it because it's just part of the process. And so it's, gonna, it's an amazing privilege. I mean, I have preached for the last almost 20, for 20 years. I have had the great opportunity to preach in other states and other countries. And out of all of that, today I feel like is going to be my favorite day. So for the last nine weeks, we have been unpacking this idea of the everyday Spirit, where we have been talking about the Holy Spirit, its power, its strength, its how its fruit manifests. We spent four, I think, four weeks on the fruit of the Spirit alone, and so we've just been dissecting this idea of living in the power of the Holy Spirit every day of our lives, rather than just on a Sunday at church or on a Wednesday at Bible study, but as an everyday part of our walk and life. And so today, as we modeled in communion as we will talk about for the rest of our time together. We're going to talk about the spirit of unity. And it's an important thing that we are, are engaging in today. And so I'm going to kick us off and I'm going to share um, what God has put on my heart concerning the spirit of unity. And then I'm going to turn it over to my daughter and, um, and, uh, and we'll all be blessed by the words that God has given her as well. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 2. Verse 42 through 47, if you have your Bible, you can turn to it. If it's on your device, you can open up your device. As you are doing that, I trust and hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, it was a, a, a wonderful day in my home. I ate way too much. I am thankful that I went on a journey of life change and lost a bunch of weight because I feel like I put a few pounds back on just on Thanksgiving Day. So Acts chapter 2. Verse number 42 through 47, this is what the Bible says. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And that's what we just did. We shared in the Lord's Supper together. What goes on and says, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And that portion of Scripture closes out and says, All while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It is a powerful portion of scripture it, it is there's so much in this and I'm going to give you kind of a broad view I could probably preach each one of these verses in a in a four to six week series alone but I'm gonna give you a, a broad scope of what I feel like the Lord has given me in this and so I'm going to point out three things about this passage and then like I said Maya is going to tell us how to get to where God is calling us to be and so one of the things I want you to understand about this passage of scripture is that the very, there, is a, there are levels, so to speak, in these verses. There are 
there are time frames, I believe, in these verses that are important to understand. And the first one, and you have a note sheet when you came in. It's got some fill-in-the-blanks. You can fill those out and track with us if you like. But the very first blank, even on your note sheet, is this is the beginning of unity. The beginning of unity is found, actually, in verse 42. The Bible says, all the believers, all the believers. It wasn't some, it wasn't a few, it wasn't the 20% or the 80%. It was all of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. There were four things that are listed just in that passage of Scripture that they devoted themselves. Teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, and prayer. Those were four. That's the beginning of unity in the body of Christ. And so this is really how everything, if we call ourselves a unified body, this is how it begins. This isn't actually the arrival point. A lot of us, unfortunately, believe this is the arrival point of unity. When we, when we fellowship together and we come to church together and we enjoy one another's company together and we go to dinner with each other and maybe even if we come to prayer on a Sunday morning and pray with each other, now we've fulfilled this call of unity that God has given us. But the reality is that's actually just the beginning and so it's, it's, actually, it's actually a whole lot like the tithe. Like we talk about the tithe in this church and we believe the tithe. And that's really just the beginning of giving. That's really just the beginning of generosity. If you look at the Old Testament and the law that it said, it says that, they, that when you add it all up as to what, the, what the, the Israelites would give would almost equate to be 23 to 27% of their income, not just 10. And if that's like crippling to our mind, then we can actually refer back to verse 47 of this passage, or 45 through 47 of this passage, where it says that they sold everything and gave it to those in need. So there, that's just the beginning of generosity and the beginning, beginning of giving. Matter of fact, it's kind of like, it's very surface level. I call it like the scratch and sniff level of unity. What do I mean by that? Anybody ever open up a magazine and it's got the perfumes in there or the colognes in there? And you open it up and you smell it and you're like, oh, I like this. And you start dabbing a magazine on your neck. You're, you're getting just a surface level of that good smelling perfume or a good smelling cologne. And, and while you dab it on there and you smell it, within minutes, it's kind of gone. Because it wasn't the real thing. It wasn't, you didn't actually experience the real thing until you spent the 80, 90, 100, $200 on the cologne or perfume that they were advertising. That's when you actually got. The real thing. What, what happened when you, how did you get the real thing? You actually invested to get the real thing. We oftentimes want to avoid, get all that we have and all that we want without actually investing in any. It's very, very surface level. And so this word devoted is an interesting word in this passage of scripture. It says they devoted themselves to these things. The word devoted means that they were attending to these things constantly. They were paying attention to these four things constantly. It's without ceasing. The word constant, the, the word devoted literally means paying attention without stopping. So I'm watching these things. I'm, I'm attending to these things. We're not ceasing. We're persistent in attending the church. We're persistent in fellowship with each other. We're persistent in eating together, and we're persistent in praying. And this is just the beginning of unity. This isn't arriving in that space. It's just the beginning what does it say next? The, the next thing that you see in that passage of Scripture in verse number 43, the Bible says, A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs 
and wonders. See, when, begin, when you begin with unity, as in verse number 42, signs and wonders will follow that unity. Signs and wonders will follow that unity. Here's the challenge. We talk about it all the time in the Western theology of churches. We don't see God move the way he does in other places. But I would also suggest as the body of Christ, we're not unified like they are in other places. I have, I have had the opportunity, to, the glorious opportunity to preach in different countries. And the unification that happens in the body of Christ is, I believe, a big part. It's not the only part, but a big part of why they see God move in signs and wonders. And what's interesting, there's a word, there's a couple of words I'm going to point out in this passage of Scripture. But it's really interesting because in the King James Version, it uses the word fear. So it says, it says, a deep sense of fear came over them all. The New Living Translation uses the word awe. The reality is, it's, it's actually neither one of those are a great translation for that word. Because we think about fear as something we're scared of, and we think about awe as something we respect and we reverence. But the reality is that that word has a different meaning. It's actually a kind of a combination of the two. There was such a sense of the holiness of God, that all they wanted to do was please him, and there was a healthy fear. That actual word fear is the Greek word phobos. It's where we get our English word phobia. It was a healthy fear, although I don't know that all phobias are actually healthy fears, to be honest with you. Folks that are scared of the air kind of counterproductive to living life. You know, how many of you are afraid of spiders? Who in here freaks out to a spider? So that's, that's, you realize that's an irrational fear, right? That's what phobias are. Phobias are all irrational. We build them up in our minds to be something. I mean, how many of you are afraid of heights, right? It's, 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 it's an irrational fear. I get the fear. I get why it's there. And it's not, I'm not saying it's not illegitimate, but it's, it's kind of irrational to have these fears of things that really that in themselves can't harm you. I have a spider who likes to hang out in my shower. And I just chill and leave him be. Some people think I'm nuts for that. He's a daddy, long legs. He likes to hang up in the corner. And so to me, it's like, yeah, no big deal. But so that's where this word, this Greek word phobos is, that is where we get the English word phobia. So there's this, there's this healthy fear that's like, I'm, I'm kind of scared, you know, because I want to please the Lord, and I'm kind of scared not to. Not in a I don't want to burn in hell kind of fear. But I, I really just, I want all that God has for me. And to not please him means I'm incomplete in what his plan is for me. And so it's kind of like the actual same word is used when the Bible describes the demons that tremble at his word. The word tremble is the same word that is used by Luke in the book of Acts when they talk about a deep sense of awe came over them. He says, he says that there was such a deep sense of awe that they wanted to please the Lord in such a way that signs and wonders followed their unity. So let's talk about that for just a moment. The miraculous signs the Bible speaks of, they're, they're, it's really interesting as I, as I begin to dive into this and study this deeper. They were literally given, especially, this is why signs, this is why miraculous signs were given. They were given to confirm or corroborate or even authenticate the presence of God in that moment. I mean, think about it. If, if you saw something that just 
auto, uh, that just was beyond your comprehension and a sign that could only be God doing something, it would kind of give credibility to what that person is saying or what that person just did or even just even credibility to the existence of God. You know, oftentimes people struggle, the logical thinking person struggles with the existence of God or, or how it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But when you see something like that or when you hear a story of somebody who was given, given a death sentence to cancer yet goes into the hospital and all of a sudden all tumors are gone, that doesn't make any sense. How is that even possible? But it starts, to, it starts to bring credibility and authenticity to the gospel and to what's being preached. And it was something that would happen that was so distinguished that no man could claim it was from them. That's, I mean, if you, if you read, the, read the stories of even Jesus doing it, he sent the apostles to go and then do it, and even called us today to walk in the same, because the Bible says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit of God that lives within you. And if that spirit lives within you, why aren't we seeing blind eyes open? Why aren't we seeing dead folks raised? After all, it's the same spirit. And so look at the word, one, look at the, the comment wonders. So signs, miraculous signs and wonders. And here's what wonders were. Wonders were meant to draw a reaction from onlookers. That's what they were for. They were meant to draw a reaction. It would leave a supernatural effect on everyone who saw it. I'll give you an example that is crazy and a little bit weird. When I was younger in my faith and I was at my home church in Baltimore, there was this, we just had this dynamic night of worship and, and the power of God was moving and people were being prayed for and people were ca- calling out and crying out in their spirit. And all of a sudden, you could get this image. And this is going to sound weird, all right? I'm just going to let you know. It's going to sound weird. But it was almost like there was this gold dust that was on, like, everything. And it's like, that's ridiculous. Really? But it literally was like on everything. It was on the seats. It was on Bibles. It was on the floor. It was on people. And it was like this thing. I mean, I remember seeing it and I thought, what's going on here? I put these, these, these drugs in this lifestyle away a whole long time ago. I'm not sure what I'm seeing here right now, right? And it did. It freaked me out a little bit. I was like, this is, eh, I don't know about this. And I remember trying to, come on, get off me. And it just wouldn't come off. And, and while that wasn't a moment that would shape my life, it was a moment that I would never forget. I left the presence of God that moment that left a supernatural effect on my life to know God, God does things that we can't comprehend. I think these things come out, these wonders and signs come out because we try to put God in this box that fits within the three-pound brain between our ears, and we tend to miss so much that he has available to us. So when they were unified in their fellowship, signs and wonders would follow. Matter of fact, some people have said that the day of miracles is past. Truth is, there never was a day of miracles. There was only a God of miracles. And that God has not changed. He said, I am God and I do not change in Malachi. And Jesus responded and reflected that by saying, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if he is a God who heals then, he's a God who heals still today. If he's a God who provides then, he's the same God who provides today. He's the same God that brings signs and wonders today as he did in Scripture. After all, he said, I am God and I do not change. And so signs and wonders will follow unity. And here's the last thing that I'm going to share with you this morning and then turn it over 
to my daughter to finish us out is the third thing and perhaps one of the most important things. See, we get hung up. We get hung up in um, we're going to be in churches. Churches are formed and birthed out of several of these thought processes and these ideas. One of them that says, you know, we're going to be a church that's all about community and everything we do is going to be going towards community and doing, doing life together, which is great. That's the call of God on every church, not just your niche of a church. It's the call of God on every church. I also believe it's the call of God on every church to walk a spirit-filled and spirit-led life. I don't think that you can negate the gifts of the Spirit or the signs and wonders that come. I, I think that's part of the church. It's part of what the church should look like even today. And here's another piece of the church that it is, I believe, required for us to look like, yet so many miss it. And the third thing, I'm gonna, the last thing I'm going to share is they shared all things. Verse 45 through 47 the Bible says, and all the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And then he closes out by saying, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This passage of scripture pretty much speaks for itself. I don't need to expand on it too much, but it breaks down the depth of unity in Christ. If there is a need among us, then among us, we should provide that need. And it doesn't make a difference what it is. And I'm not talking about, for those of you who follow societal fit norms, I'm not talking about socialism where we take from everyone and give to everyone else. I'm talking about the genuine Christ followers meeting needs of others. Every one of us at some point in time can probably relate to when we had a struggle in our life, whether it be a financial one, a, a provisional one, a health one, a mental one, a physical one, whatever the case is. And there's always has been, or at least I hope there has been, someone to step up and help you in that struggle. The church is called to step up and help one another in, the, in that struggle. This is what the New Testament church looked like. They sold everything and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Why? So that everyone's needs would be provided for. Now, I'm not asking you to sell your house, to sell your car. I'm not asking you to give everything you own so that everyone else in the world is provided for. But what I am asking you and what I am teaching you from this passage is that you have to have a heart of generosity that's open to others. Oh, you need a home? You need a place to stay? Well, okay, if I don't have a place to stay in my home, maybe it doesn't fit into my home, but you know what? I have a wallet that has a couple hundred bucks in it, and I could put you up in a hotel for the night. Or, you know, you, you, you've struggled, and you've lost your job, and it's Christmas time, and, and, and they really want to just be able to give your kids a special time at Christmas. You know what the church should do? Provide for it. And this isn't popular preaching, I know, because now I'm talking about your stuff. I'm talking about your money. You know, I grew, I grew up in New York as my high school growing up and share a little, like, part of my pre-Jesus. This is pre-Jesus, so don't judge me. I used to listen to this hip-hop band, this group who at the time was perhaps one of the greatest hip-hop groups in the history of the world. They went by the Wu-Tang Clan. And they grew up, and not actually too far from where I grew up. I don't, I don't listen to, I don't partake in that any longer. It's not valuable for my soul. But there was a phrase that he uttered. 
and I will make it very, very G-rated. I would make it that way even if kids weren't here. But it's very G-rated. But he says basically that people are so stingy, they're so worried about self that they have short arms and deep pockets. I'm going to let that sit in you, sit on your, on your head for just a minute. They're so stingy, they have short arms and deep pockets. What's that mean? That what they own is at the bottom of their pocket, but their hands are too short to reach it, to give it to someone else. So here's the, here's the reality when it comes to these things. We are called to share life together. Open up our homes together. Open up our wallets together. Open up our hearts together. That is what the New Testament church looks like. That is what the power of the Holy Spirit did in the book of Acts. Because this passage of scripture that we're preaching and teaching right now came right after Pentecost. Right after the Holy Spirit fell, this is what they did. They were so consumed with the love of God and so consumed with the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what they did. They fellowshiped together constantly. They, signs and wonders followed, and then they literally shared everything that they had. This is, the, this is what unity looks like in the gospel. Beginning of, the beginnings of unity is spending that time together. The signs and wonders follow that unity, and they shared everything. And here's the point of it all. The whole point of it all is found in the very end of verse 47. He says, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Each day he added those who were being saved. Churches today have the same 47 folks in it that have known Jesus for 20 years. Who, where, where is their addition? Where is the salvation? Where are lives being changed? That's the New Testament church. Adding to them daily, not weekly, but daily, those who are being saved. So how do we get there? Well, for how we get there, I have the honor of turning it over to my daughter. And she speaks what God has placed on her heart concerning this idea. Um, okay, hi. Um, well, I'm very, very nervous to do this. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so I really have like two main reasons why I feel like this is important. Um, so... The first one is societal reasons. So we live in an extremely divided nation um, right now. You know, our nation divides over a lot of different things, um, race, class, gender, belief systems, politics, pretty much anything you can think of our nation can find something to disagree with. Um, but because of that division, I think our country has developed the greatest opportunity for us to be able to live in unity with one another. Um, but we can't really live in unity if we hate each other. And even Christians are divided in the church, so different denominations disagree on theological views. Um, and this disagreement causes there to be just as much division in the church as there is in politics and in society. Um, many Christians are very legalistic and judgmental, and that oftentimes drives people who don't really know a lot about faith or a lot about Christianity away from the church and away from God. Um, and the second reason are the biblical reasons. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no division in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. 
Um, so that is a command from Paul to the Corinthian church for them to not have, it's pretty self-explanatory, like don't have division among yourself and don't have division in the church. So in order for us to build on this concept of unity, I want to um, turn your attention to Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Um, and that says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So in order for us to be a unified people, not just in the church, but in society as well, um, there's three main things I want to pull out of the passage. So the first one is that we need to be able to forgive each other. The second one is we have to love each other. And the third one is we have to allow a change to take place in our hearts. But we can only achieve this if we do it through Christ. So my first um, point is forgiveness. Uh, verse 13 says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So when the Bible says to make allowance for each other's faults, it's saying that we should have patience and endure with others and their mistakes that affect us. Um, Paul is saying that we have to forgive people. Um, he's suggesting that we show favor and extend grace that cancels out the debt of their mistake. No one's perfect, and if we don't forgive people, then what are we really accomplishing? People will pretty much always have the preconceived notions that Christians are stuck up and that we think we're better than everyone else, and that's only going to end up causing more division. Um, so I've struggled with a lot of things in my life, some of them brought on by myself, some of them from, like, outside things. Um, but one thing that's, like, always been really heavy on my life is um, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the fifth grade, which pretty much everyone here knows. Um, you know, as a fifth grader, like, I was really confused and really upset by this. Um, as a kid, I didn't really understand what being a diabetic meant. No one in my family had type 1 diabetes. Um, no one in my family really had diabetes at all. So I was very, I didn't really have any friends that had it. I was very confused and, like, in the dark about all of it. Um, and for a really, really long time, I thought that, like, I had done something to make God mad at me, to, um, like, make that happen. Um, and I remember there was one night, I was, like, 14 or 15, I had just got out of the hospital for, um, for a diabetic issue, like, my pump, like, malfunctioned, and I had eaten a lot of, like, sugar that night, and I was at a friend's house, and my blood sugar went really, really high, so I had to go to the um, hospital and, like, get it all corrected and everything and I remember I was just in my room like 14 or 15 like crying like God like what did I do like why are you mad at me why do I have diabetes and then I realized like it's not my fault like I didn't tell my pancreas to stop working <laughs> so I, I had to work through forgiveness in that way but forgiving myself for being mad at God like God's perfect God didn't give me diabetes and it took me a long time to be able to forgive myself and to realize that I was angry for the wrong reasons. Um, and forgiveness is really difficult, even forgiving other people, not just yourself. But, you know, unfortunately, when we are hurt by other people, we immediately gravitate towards a worldly standard. We hold grudges and we gossip and we generally become petty towards people. But according to Paul, we need to be willing to forgive each other in order to be able to walk in unity through Christ.
So why do we forgive? First uh, John 2.6 says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So really simply, we forgive because Jesus forgave us and we're called to live like Jesus. Without a heart of forgiveness, we can't take any other steps towards unity. And as we begin to walk in forgiveness, we will be able to love one another. And without love, there would be no unity. So my second point is love. Um, and verse 14 says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So the all that Paul is talking about here when he says above all are different virtues mentioned in Colossians 3 verse 12. So verse 12 says that we should clothe ourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But in verse 14, Paul says that we should above all clothe ourselves with love. So clothing yourself with love like literally means to put it on like you were putting on clothes. So, you know, in the morning when you're getting ready, you put on, like, a, your shirt, your pants, your socks, you do your hair, all of that. But you're not really ready to leave until you put shoes on. And it's the same thing with God's love. We can act how we want to act, say what we want to say. But at the end of the day, if we don't have God's love in us, then we're not really accomplishing anything. Um, the last half of verse 14 says that loving God binds us all together in perfect harmony um, and that's the definition of biblical unity, is all being together in perfect harmony. And the words binds and perfect in this verse mean to be united together in spiritual perfection without fault. By showing God's love to others, we will be able to live in perfect harmony and be unified as one body. Perfect harmony isn't everyone being perfect, though, because that's not possible. But it is making allowance for mistakes and extending grace towards others. And love transcends all differences. No matter who you are, what your background is, where you come from, what language you speak, love is understood and felt by everyone. Paul has taught us that in order to live a life of unity, it is necessary to forgive, um, forgive one another and love one another. And neither of the, these things can happen without there being a genuine change in your heart. So the third thing I want to take away from this passage is change in verse 15 says, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So the peace that comes from Christ living in our hearts will lead us to a change in how we view other human beings, a change in how we think, um, and a change in how we treat people in general. So James Baldwin said, not everyone that is, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So until we face the issues of racism, sexism, classism, cultural fears, um, just cultural unawareness, our society can't change them. Our country has always been divided on some level, but nothing's really revealed that division like several events that have taken place recently, and they continue to de-escalate the progress towards unity. These events have provided perhaps the greatest opportunity to bring change than in any other time period. Um, you know, the church has a potential to, everyone has a potential to impact everyone. With social media and technology being the way it is, you could reach people all the way across the world and not even know it. And that should be motivation to show people the love of Christ. That should be motivation to, um, you know, display God's love in our everyday lives. 
God doesn't make decisions based on age, religion, race, culture, background, or sex, so why should we? Why do we think that we can go above God and decide, well, this person doesn't look like me, or they don't act like me, or they hurt me, so they don't deserve for me to show them God's love? God loves everyone just the same. He loves the murderer as much as the worship leader and the prostitute the same as the pastor. And if God doesn't judge us based on those things, then why do we judge each other? We need a change in our hearts and our mindsets to love everyone just as God has loved us. So as I close out my portion of the message, um, I just want to leave you with a few things. So John 17:23 says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in perfect harmony. So Jesus said it himself in John 17 verse 23 that if we remain in him, we will experience perfect unity. And Paul echoed that declaration in Colossians 3, 13 through 15. And even in the Old Testament, before Jesus and before Paul, David wrote that it is pleasant to live together in perfect harmony. We need to be willing to forgive each other as God forgave us. We need to show people the love of Christ. And we need to let the peace that comes from Christ rule in our hearts so that we can have a change. And that change will just edify the kingdom of God and just be for his glory. And without those changes, there is no unity. And my hope for the church is that we can bring unity through him and we can truly forgive, love, and change. There's so much, so much richness and so much power in the idea of what the church is called to be, to live in this spirit of unity. And then I, I, I believe that that is a great practical how to make it happen today how how does that work today you know to, to forgive one another to love one another and to, to be the change we all talk about a world that needs to change all right my friend Ken over here wears so many different flavors of the of a similar shirt that says be the change the change starts with me all right you want to see change be the change you want to see you know, we can't, we can't expect everyone else to change if we ourselves are unwilling to change. And I'm not saying necessarily that you need to change your theology or your doctrine or what you believe. There are th certain things I believe to be gospel truth that I will hang my life on. But just because it's gospel truth that I hang my life on does not necessarily mean that I have to judge someone else for thinking differently. There's no unity in that. And that's what the body of Christ needs more than ever before is unity in the body. There are attacks every day against the church, attacks every day against believers. You go, we have the comfort of sitting here in a movie theater and worshiping God and hearing the gospel preached it with complete and total peace and rest. And we can walk out of this space, change our lives, and walk out what we've heard. But there are believers just like you and me sitting in nations that have closed to the gospel and that they will kill them for doing the same thing that we're doing with freedom. So let's not take advantage of what we have. Worship team, come and get set. I'm going to wrap this morning up here. It's a couple more thoughts. And, but the reality, of, the reality of, of life and the everyday, living your life every day in the spirit of God, it's 
soaked in being who Christ has called us to be, reflecting what he has lived and modeled for us. You know, he modeled forgiveness. I mean, think, uh, just to put it like this, just put it at this level so you might be able to let it sit with you a little bit deeper. Christ died for people whom he knew would never, ever serve him. He died for them. He loved them in such a way that he died for them. He didn't just die for those that are sitting in the church today. He died for those that refused to walk into the church. Yet we cast them off as if they have no value, but yet they are the reason he suffered and he died. The reason he shed his blood. And so I'm not quite sure what's going on in your mind and your heart right now, but my heart gets stirred towards the idea of forgiveness. You can't possibly have unity with God and unity with one another with unforgiveness in your heart. I mean, Jesus made it sound a whole lot worse than me when he said, if you can't forgive anyone else, then how can my Father in heaven ever forgive you? We negate so much of that. And I, I get why, because it's painful. To forgive someone means I have to recall what they've done. I have to remember what they've done in order to forgive them. And so this morning, I really want us just to reflect on that for a few minutes, that, that idea of forgiveness. To hear my daughter speak and talk about forgiving herself for being mad at God, as if God was the problem. That's a, just, so, just so you know, that's, that's a mature and deep level of understanding because we get mad at God. I, I know, I, I remember the day that she was diagnosed. I remember standing in the hospital and I remember shaking my fist to God saying, who, I literally would say, who do you think you are? And so I remember that day. I remember being angry with him, frustrated with him. Then realizing my anger and frustration is pushed in a wrong direction. And immediately, God, forgive me. But sometimes we hold on to that. Somebody hurts you. It could even just be the consequence of your own decisions and choices. But whatever, the, whatever it is, whoever has done you wrong, whoever has brought pain to your life, God desires to forgive, for you to forgive them. No one's saying you have to engage daily with their lives. But if we're called to love one another, we have to be able to forgive one another. Not forgiving someone, I heard someone say it like this, and I think I might have shared this before, but not forgiving someone is the equivalent of drinking a poison and expecting the other person to die. Because it only does damage to you. It only does damage to your heart. When there's unity in the body of Christ, there's forgiveness. And even if that person isn't seeking forgiveness, we're responsible to forgive them anyway. Let God sort that part out. Because I don't want to give anybody, I don't know about you, but I don't want to give anybody that kind of power over my life. Because that's what it is. It causes us to stray from the path that God has called us to. It causes us to, to miss out on a lot of what he wants for our lives. It's just simply because of that one little thing of unforgiveness. But it's a huge thing. So this morning I want to pray. And I, I want to give you an opportunity. 
And so yeah, I'm going to ask you to do something painful. I'm going to ask you to do something difficult this morning. And so if all my children that are in here with us this morning, if you'll just do me a favor and just be very still for a few moments. We're almost done, I promise. Just be very still for a few moments because I really want there to be no distractions in this moment. So just be still for a couple moments. And I want you to think of that person, that situation, that hurt, that pain. I want you to think of that. Yeah, I'm asking you to recall something painful. I want you to think of how, you, how it made you feel and how it continues to make you feel. And then very practically, I want you to say, God, I give this to you. You may in that instant, in that moment, feel set free from that and true forgiveness taking place. Or quite likely for many, that's just the beginning of the process. Sometimes forgiveness in our hearts can take place instantaneously. And God sets us free in that moment, but sometimes there's a process. Sometimes it does, you're just opening the door. Now there might be some more conversations that need to take place between you and God, you and your pastor, you and a counselor, someone to help you walk through some of these things. But I do believe that God has this ability and this power to supernaturally set you free the moment you begin to declare those things. Because I want you then to forgive that person. God, I give this to you. I forgive them. In the name of Jesus. I do. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about the divorce. I want you to think about the pain. I want you to think about the hurt. I want to think you think about the emotional, mental, and physical abuse. I want you to think about those things. And then I want you to give it to God. And I want you to ask it. I want you to forgive the person that has done those things to you.